Child protection interventions were critical, but, but felt to me at the time just overwhelming. Mm. I remember I was standing in the queue for, for the shower with a bunch of Dinka men um, mm. up in Malawalcon. We had a hard time keeping hold of all of our buckets in this mm. particular compound. So we were waiting for a bucket to be able to have a shower and, and a colleague kind of came running up to me and said that the Luo had just raided the Nuer. Mm. The 300 children had been abducted um, and what were we going to do about it? And I sort of looked around at our bucketless queue of people <laughs> waiting to have a shower. And... Uh, <laughs> And thought that that was a very good question, but not one that I or others in my vicinity were very well equipped to answer. Kate is an executive with the International Rescue Committee covering the Great Lakes region of East and Central Africa. And on re-listening to this interview, what is... Striking is how thoroughly it subverts expectations. Most basically, the image of international charities is that they're dominated by posh white people from the global north. Now, that is largely true, but it doesn't change the fact that many, many, many people come in through indirect means, going the long way around, often the very hard way around, for what they see as a calling. A second background fact is that humanitarian aid is a relatively technical field, and the IRC is a market leader, in fact, in making it more technical. But Kate nonetheless offers a very considered and at times almost pained reflection on the ethics of this work and how it fits into its social context. Even narratively, there's a turnaround. We start off with a rubbish, slightly traumatic first experience in South Sudan, which epitomizes in many ways how the work can go wrong. But that's turned around into a, a very successful and generally very fulfilling career in similarly tough contexts. So we spend a good amount of time unpacking that, what changed, how she found a bit more personal agency. This is One Step Forward. Firstly, thank you for doing this, receiving me in your office. I'm sure you've got other things to do, possibly more important things to do. It's a pleasure. I do usually start these in the most obvious place. If you meet someone socially, and I'm not talking about the little bubble of expats in places like Nairobi, but at a wedding or at somebody's house in the UK, let's say, how do you explain what you do for a living? So I was thinking about about this question, um, and I think that honest answer is that I quite often avoid talking about what I do for a living because um, I think it is hard to have a meaningful conversation about it uh, without it getting quite deep quite fast and and in the wedding example I think uh, people generally say oh you live in Kenya and then we talk about what it's like to live in Kenya rather than what about what I do. They say I went on safari one time and you said hmm. Quite. I've been to Africa. But I think when I do try and describe my work, it tends to be, I tend to go in through the organisation. You know, I work for an organisation which works with people who are affected by conflict and crisis. My work focuses on the Great Lakes region, and for us that's somewhat erroneously uh, Burundi, CAR, DRC and Tanzania. <laughs> One of um, those at least is not Great Lakes. Quite. And we try and work with those people who are experiencing very challenging times to um, bring positive changes in terms of their health, their education, their access to income and assets, um, and their autonomy about decision-making about what's going on for them. I can't let go your observation that it tends to get quite deep quite fast. How so? Um, because as soon as you start interrogating any of those points that I've just made, you're into some kind of fairly complex definitions about which conflict and which crises and mm. um, which of those outcomes and why are you prioritising this group over the other group and, and sometimes, well, what about 
what about the people back in the UK who need support? And, uh, and yeah, I think there's a, I think these are these are big conversations, and generally speaking, over lunch. Um, maybe that's still a hang-up, actually, on my part from, I think, when I first came to work in South Sudan, my first... Uh, my first deployment, I think I was very kind of personally affected by the realities of what, what was happening and, and may have got slightly uh, slightly evangelical about the, uh, the importance of people engaging with things that they really didn't want to engage with. How so? Um, I think it's hard, again, in the, con- in the context that you've described as where this is happening, I think it's hard to talk about, I think it's hard to get to questions of global inequality how all of our systems have led to a place where some people are so excluded from the opportunities that me and my friends are lucky enough to have um and i yeah i just think those are uncomfortable uncomfortable truths for some social settings it's not so don't bang on about them uh when the opportunity presents itself (laughs) Just, just at a global level to set the stage a little bit, where has that taken you um, geographically? So ha- having started um, working in, in a development organisation and, um, and then for Save the Children in the UK, I'm working directly with children, which was kind of my passion at the beginning. I went out to South Sudan uh, for about a year and a half and uh, then... <laughs> Came back from South Sudan, made a promise that I was never going to go back to a fragile state, being in somewhat Ooh. of a fragile state myself. And, um, and how did that work out? Uh, four months after that, I was persuaded to go to DRC um, for an emergency deployment that was following the CNDP rebellion uh, in North Kivu. And I just kind of, in a very cliched way, fell very much in love with that part of DRC and that role and yeah and felt very very differently to how I'd felt how effective I was uh, in South Sudan so I ended up staying there sort of on and off for for nearly four years before I moved to Cote d'Ivoire for a couple of years um, and then to Mali both of those in kind of post-election or post-coup situations and then Moved into my first regional role in in Senegal before I got here, just a bit more than two years ago. Mm. It's it's quite the list, and there are some interesting questions there in and of themselves. But I, I'm intrigued by your comment that you ended up in a development organisation completely by accident in the UK. How did how did that come about? You studied languages, no? I did. Yeah. I studied French and Italian. So I think the, the kind of passion for language and the passion for being outside the UK was always there. Um, mm. So I, I went off, I taught English in Japan for a couple of years when I graduated. Nice job. I'd enjoy that. Which was fantastic. Came back and by virtue of the accident of having travelled, uh, we travelled back from Japan over, over sea and over land, which meant I spent quite a lot of time in Russia. Got back and I can't even remember quite how this happened, but I ended up running a Russian travel startup um, with a Russian couple. Uh, this is taking twists and turns. I did not well, anticipate. Was, <laughs> Go on. I was saying yes to things as they as they I mean, arrived. It also, also was, sounds like a fun job in my view. It was, uh, it was fascinating and it taught me loads of, loads of stuff about the kind of wheeling and dealing yeah. and how you pretended to have a travel company running it, sitting in... Russian couple's uh, front room. No, it was, a, it was a great opportunity, but very, very evident that I was not cut out for commercial, in that I kept giving people refunds when their hotels in Moscow were not up to scratch, which was most of the ones on our books at the time. Anyway, the, <laughs> the kind of route out of that was um, a friend of mine who was working for the charity Sense contacted me and said their head of fundraising had gone off on a uh, leave of absence, they had their first ever international challenge event going mm-hmm. out to India. And so my travel agent experience was suddenly interesting to this to this charity. So I went in to work for them for a month to, to kind of get this group of people out to the Himalayas to do their trek. 
it was an organization of six people, five people when I went in there and mm. ended up staying for two years and having getting exposure to all the different bits of the organization mm. because it was so small. Um, so that was a happy accident. Sense works for people with extreme disabilities. Definitely, remember correctly. Is the, um, is the target population. Um, They're bigger now, no? Sense in the UK is still a very large um, is, service yeah. provider. Um, Sense International, who I'm not closely in touch with anymore. This was a long time ago, but my understanding have really gone for the kind of devolved management um, so they're not big in the UK but they have um, country led uh, and, and partner led programs in half a dozen countries around the world and really impressive work and just sort of now when I, I just before you came in I was talking to a colleague about our approach to client responsiveness client participation and thinking back to those days about the very meaningful work that Sense International were doing with people who are both deaf and blind mm. and living in rural India, you know, in Romania, and really getting their input and uh, and kind of authorization for the work. Um, that was that was pretty awesome um, back in two thousand and one. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's a very sort of clearly defined and much needed niche, quite quite specific. But you obviously something about it appealed to you because you. Concurrently did a master's this time in development. Yeah. Obviously with the intention of staying in the sector. Yep. So what drove that? Was there a moment at which you thought, okay, this is something I want to do permanently long term? Um, I think it was more the other way around. I think it was having found myself with the extraordinary privilege of working in this fascinating organization on this really meaningful work and feeling you know that my my imposter syndrome required me you know to get some of the foundational tools uh, mm. to be able to do it more usefully i had a colleague who was studying uh, the it was a masters in development management with the open university and we used to talk a lot about the content of that so i got signed up and i that the modular nature of those courses meant mm. that i could study things that fit with where I was in my job at the time. It took me three and a half years to, to finish the thing. So that spanned a few different jobs. But I think it, yeah, it gave me an opportunity to feel like I had some understanding qualification framework um, for the for the questions and the, the, you know, the work we were trying to do. Mm. I wonder why then shortly after finishing or getting that qualification, you then moved internationally uh, from the organization, which you said at the time you, you thought very highly of. What prompted that? Was that the urge to, to move around and to, to travel still, or was it something else? There was an interim step between between Sense International and um, going out to South Sudan. I worked for Save the Children UK for right. three years. And so that was a role working primarily with refugee and asylum-seeking children coming in the into the UK. Mm. So we did a lot of work around Yarlswood Detention yeah. Centre and you know those issues which are all still very, very live and horrifyingly the same today as they were back then. Mm. So the, the, the impetus for that was Save the Children ran this this training program we were the first year of the first cohort on a training program which is now tra transformed into the humanitarian leadership academy i believe it's oh, called yeah, yeah. but a group of us fairly green young generally british people uh, went through this year-long training so a mm. fairly massive investment on the part of that organization with lots of crazy simulation stuff and uh, hmm. working with former military. Um, I'm not sure it's a training that would be followed exactly in the same way these days. Um, <laughs> but you know, with the intention, their intention through that program was to provide more entry-level staff into international programs with a skill set that I have come to realise, having gone you know, being further on in my career now, was was largely actually about the fact that we had been through a generally through Western education, you know, had a way of analysing and, and writing and organising ideas that um, 
that particular moment, the, the Save the Georgian Country programme in South Sudan seemed to be uh, really valuing. So I was recruited as Planning, Learning and Communications Officer. Those three are the same thing. <laughs> it was a bit of a jumble job description um, of things that they couldn't find anyone else who, who mm. wanted to do or had the time to do. And I was really a kind of extra pair of hands uh, to the achievement of... Three, three <laughs> classically underfunded and under-resourced functions yeah. rolled into one to make them even more under-resourced. And everything and nothing job, yes. And I suppose, completely naively, I, like lots of people starting in this sector, um, coming from Europe and North America, I think, I saw this as an opportunity to, um, to have an adventure, to mm -hmm. do some good, to practice all the things that I'd been trying to study and mm -hmm. being trained for. But I wasn't actually terribly prepared for the realities of South Sudan shortly after the CPA and the challenges of organisations like Save the Children to, to make a real impact in that situation. In what way? Or ways, I should say? In lots and lots of different ways. Um, I mean, again, I think I think now I look back on that time and just realise how how despite the training and the and the masters and you know the investment that had been made in me, just how unqualified I was to go into a, a context that I knew, knew shamefully little about mm. um, and that I was really learning on the job uh, what this conflict had looked like, what this meant for these uh, for these populations. I remember, sort of slightly embarrassed to admit this still, but I remember reading, I was reading What is the What, uh, mm -hmm. which was Dave Eggers and, um, yep. and, uh, and Deng together, sitting in a wheel um, and sort of out over breakfast um, in a tent and having a realisation that this narrative had happened within 10 miles of where I was sitting and, and, and feeling deeply uncomfortable about the fact that I was learning about that from a novel or, you know, albeit a historical novel. And I think the, you know, the nature of the, the context at that time meant that we were, we were struggling on the most basics of logistics, um, the, the most basic of programme delivery, massive security management challenges, and uh, yeah, and I think I my experience of that, which is clearly to do partly with who I was at the time, was that was a sense of kind of helplessness in the face of problems that were not going to be fixed by a planning, learning, and communication officer. What was the larger work? What kinds of interventions were we talking about at that time? Trying to um, trying to work on on health, education, yeah. child protection, primarily, and you know, absolutely some successes in terms of you know, we built classrooms. Sometimes then it rained, and sometimes those classrooms um, fell over. <laughs> were still there uh, after the rain, and sometimes they were they were less there. Um, you know, the child protection interventions were critical, but but felt to me at the time just overwhelming. Mm. I remember I was standing in the queue for um, for the shower with a bunch of Dinka men um, mm. up in Malawalcon. We had a hard time keeping hold of all of our buckets in this mm. particular compound. So we were waiting for a bucket to be able to have a shower and, and a colleague kind of came running up to me and said that the Luo had just raided the new air. Mm. The 300 children had been abducted. Um, and what were we going to do about it? And I sort of looked around at our bucketless queue of people waiting <laughs> to have a shower. And... Uh, <laughs> And thought that that was a very good question, but not one that I or others in my vicinity yeah. were very well equipped to answer. Yeah. And you said that that made a very strong impact on you at the time. Do you read that differently sitting here now? I mean, in terms of what kind of impact you could be making and what kind of role you could be playing... Does that sense of futility seem proportionate in, in retrospect? 
I think that's a fascinating question, and I don't. Uh, I think South Sudan is a particularly um, was and remains, yeah, yeah, a, a country that has had a fairly unique set, set of circumstances that make things very, very hard. I think I've learned a lot. I hope <laughs> since then I <laughs> feel quite as hopeless as I did uh, back then. Although um, there are days, uh, I think that the sector has kind of transformed itself in very, very many ways since then. And there is a level of professionalization, of organization, mm. accountability, um, which I think is, is quite different now. And I also think there's that the cultural shift of the, the default position of who is the right person to go in and be that planning, learning and communications mm. officer has changed. And I'm not sure that they would pick mm. a first deployment, you know, un ostensibly kind of unqualified individual to go and do it. And hopefully it would find a South Sudanese person with mm. that those skills and experience who would come at it from such a different direction than the one I did. Yeah, one would hope. Uh, and we might come back to the extent to which that is, is, is true or not. I, su I suspect we may, yes. But the, the impact on you, as you described it, was was um, profound. You went back to the UK, you felt somewhat traumatised, may or may not be the right word, but had a strong impact on you. By the sound of it, you didn't have any easier time of it getting much understanding or interest in those issues, that experience back in the UK. I, I suspect it was no easier then to have a conversation about it than it is now. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably true. Although I suspect I've got more vocabulary for it than I did then. I think it was very raw when I left South Sudan. I got some very good advice from a very wise colleague who said, you know, you're, you're allowed to leave this if you don't want to, uh, if you don't want to stay there, if you don't feel that you're being useful and, and left. But yeah, I left like lots of people kind of acutely aware of the fact that I was able to do that and able to walk back into HQ consultancy and, and able to then go off and make other choices, uh, which was not true of my colleagues and uh, the people we were trying to work with. So what happened that made you jump back into a different situation about which you were also not expert? I'm sure you did more preparation, more yeah. reading and were more demanding of yourself mm. in that regard, but um, it doesn't sound like you had a background prior to that in in Central Africa or, or Congo specifically. No. Did something change that change your perspective such that you were willing to dive um, back in? I think <laughs> honest answer is partly it was um, flattery. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is an honest answer. A group of more senior, more experienced colleagues no. asked me to do this and and that was that was flattering that their assumption that I could mm -hmm. um, do something. And this is the same sort of work? It was a different... So by this point, I, I'd kind of moved up the food chain a little bit. And this was a... In, when I went into Benny, it was as a field coordinator. So more of a management role. And I think that was also part of the attraction of it because mm -hmm. um, I think I felt more optimistic or more like trying to to bring about change more directly um, mm. in a role that, that afforded me. Um, having, as I say, sort of been fallen in love with, with the place, which I maintain mm. is, you know, the Benny Lubero Road is mm. the most beautiful road I've ever driven down. But also with a, a group of people who I just found, from whom I learned such a huge amount in thinking about it now, there was something there was something different about going in as the as the field manager, as a field coordinator, but being able to approach that from a perspective of 
actually, guys, I don't know what mm. I'm doing here. Help me. Which probably made lots of mistakes along the way, but but felt like a a good way to start those relationships and to start thinking about like how do we do this mm. how do we do this well together as a team of different people many of whom have much more experience than I do but mm. I can ask some good questions of them uh, based on some of the questions that I didn't get answered previously mm. did the situation as a whole seem more optimistic in South Sudan and thinking in that period there were obviously many many issues in Eastern DRC but it was a relatively at least from 2009 it was a relatively sort of optimistic point at least for a few years did the situation feel better than South Sudan or was that somehow you were viewing it in a very different way I, su I suspect it was a my take on it was a lot to do with my kind of yeah my lens my perspective so my experience were, was of a of a different type of different quantity of resilience I suppose and that's a mm. that's a jargon term I think in it's in the sense of you know, this situation which in which these communities had been hammered over and over again by um, all sorts of different types of violence and conflict, but maintained such optimism and such determination things were going to be better, which had not been my experience of, uh, of the people I met in South Sudan in quite the same way. I suppose work-wise, it didn't feel like a better situation that we were primarily working at that point with children associated with armed groups and armed forces. And actually in the middle of that period, there was a political decision taken that there weren't any children in armed groups mm. and armed forces anymore, which led to withdrawal of funding. So I spent quite a lot of my time in DRC closing things down and, and shutting offices and making people redundant. But again, I think having learned from some very positive examples as well as from, from some negative ones, more about process and approaches to those things and trying to go through those processes in ways that are respectful and inclusive and kind to the people. I, mm. I mean, it's, it's an odd thing to be proud of, but I'm one of the things I remain proud of uh, in my career in this sector is making 123 people redundant and not having a single kind of legal case or, or death, a single or death threat or death threat <laughs> as um, can happen and actually remaining on very very good terms with mm. a large number of those people and and seeing them come back in and grow their careers it's, it's interesting that you have almost diametrically opposed feelings about those two experiences then on the face of it there's plenty to be depressed about in both do you think it's a system failure that puts you in that position in the first place without you know avoiding everyone has personal responsibility to make responsible decisions of mm. course but does the humanitarian sector put people in those kind of situations still i mean is is that still the practice to some extent does people still have those kind of early experiences possibly maybe probably even um i is it avoidable i think it i think it it needs to be avoidable i think you know, mm. there is a much greater emphasis um certainly within the irc um on duty of care of making better deployment decisions than the one that, uh, that may have been made there so thinking about your question of the difference between the two of, I suppose, really focusing on individuals' agency, whether they're, mm. whether they're staff or clients of the organisation. And I think there have been some really big shifts um, in the approach in the sector to, you know, this is not about sending bodies to places where bodies are required, mm. um, but rather about what is the fit for somebody to be as effective as they as they can be and how do we take care of them if that's not working out for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a, a very succinct way of putting it. I mean, I, I'm interested then why the... 
relatively, I mean, two or so years at a time, I think it was longer in DRC, but there was still a, a succession of different places as we uh, covered at the, the beginning. What drove that? What was the rationale for moving in that way? Um, I think it was partly... Flattery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it stopped being about flattery. No, but actually, that's not true either. No, some of the more recent moves have absolutely been about the flattery. Um, I think, for example, deciding to leave Congo to go to to Cote d'Ivoire mm-hmm. um, was partly driven by a, a kind of personal desire to have to have a different lifestyle, mm-hmm. to have a different kind of uh, quality of life. I was attracted to and fortunate to be able to to think about going to Cote d'Ivoire at the end of 2011 <coughs> was a a context about which I felt like I had some something useful to mm. to bring um, in terms of post election crisis, but already kind of tipping into that transition phase and uh, a role which had kind of greater geographic and budgetary scope at uh, that particular time so it was mm-hmm. a kind of growth opportunity for me and yeah living in Abidjan seemed like a nice idea and and was a very nice experience <laughs> turned, out that way. turned out to be um, a place in which I could I started I you know for the first time in many years um, I started to have weekends again yeah um, and that was I think quite good for me it's still a at that time politically very tricky situation I mean, not huge levels of violence in an absolute sense but with that was certainly a, a scenario mm-hmm. uh, and then mali absolutely were huge levels of violence continue to be yeah pretty pretty high levels of violence so why why double down in that way on these kinds of contexts which are objectively at the harder end in terms of one's sort of stress levels, personal life, the ability to execute good work, mm. um, there's a whole range of complications in these situations. So, what was the appeal of that specifically that you kept kept doing it? And really, now or maybe at a regional role, but still very much those kinds of contexts. Yeah, I think it's intuitively I have always struggled with the notion of outsiders doing development work and I've always understood that that development work is something that is driven by people in the place that they're in but I've also I also don't kind of fit in the pure humanitarian mold terribly easy easily we were talking earlier about the fact these these are unhelpful distinctions in any case but I suppose I feel that there's something there's something important about that demonstration of empathy and, and sort of being a good neighbor in mm-hmm. the in the in the world which means that getting into some of the harder situations where people are because of the nature of the conflict or crisis around them are, are kind of less able to to rally the resources um, or organize the response themselves so I so say there's something about me as a white British woman and and I you know I ask myself lots of questions about as the world evolves and as I evolve about whether I have a role in the places that I'm in now mm-hmm. but I think yeah intuitively and and increasingly intellectually sort of recognizing that that some of that more <coughs> self-serving more more what's the word I'm looking for yeah my my sense of wanting to learn about new places and new people and um has to be coupled with being useful in a in a way that Mm. is more meaningful and where I'm not taking the space and this is where there's a big question about whether I am but taking the space of somebody from that country from that community um, who ought to actually be getting this salary and, order, and this power and this authority to direct the um, the response that the international community is bringing in in any case 
Mm. It's quite a rambly answer to that question. In one way, yes. In, in, in one way, no, because it was a simply worded question that raises a hell of a lot of very difficult mm -hmm. issues, so I don't think it can be answered simply. I'm, I'm interested that you use this metaphor of, of being a good neighbor to places that are highly marginalized or under huge amounts of strain. I mean, where does that come from? Where does that disposition come from? Do you know? Um, I'm not sure that I do know the answer to that. I suppose I have two sisters who are both social workers. Um, that okay. might point to something. Some in genetic our, factor there. <laughs> some, or, or a nurture uh, situation. Another um, part of the, the the hypothesis might be, I was born in Nigeria. Um, I was only there for eight months. But I think that probably has has influenced my, somehow, in some way, my mm. decision to spend quite a lot of my adult life in Africa. But I don't know, maybe a more straightforward answer is still, despite the world's efforts to to show the contrary, I think we're going to get through this with a sense of social justice as a, as a species. Whether that's me working out of Nairobi on the Great Lakes region or my sister working in Liverpool um, in child protection services or me going back to the UK to do some community work, I think you know, there's a sense of it's kind of kind of what we're here for if that's not would you would you do that do you do you view that as a similar enough or you know connected enough kind of work that you would consider doing that kind of role in in the uk or, or wherever else yeah i think i mean i to you to you it's it's the same ethic it's the same yeah and i think yeah i think the way UK of viewing is, the world uk is also in uh, great need of all hands on deck um, a whole lot of things. at the moment. Yeah, and when I think back to yeah, that work, the work that I did for Save the Children UK in the England programme, so I was frontline staff um, delivering sure. services uh, directly. And that is enormously rewarding. Mm. And of course, you know, the longer I stay in the, in, the, in the hierarchy, in the management roles, uh, the more removed I am from that. Mm. direct delivery of the services, the more respect I have for the people who are doing it. And sometimes, yeah, a desire to get back to being, yeah, being more frontline myself. Could you elaborate on this idea or this concern about taking up space that would be better filled by somebody else? I'm very conscious, and I'm sure you're acutely conscious that when we're talking about the Great Lakes, we're talking about quote-unquote crises that have been going on since one cares to begin counting, let's say. Yeah. So in that context, we're talking about a 20 or 30 year continuous intervention by international organizations. Mm -hmm. How do you pass or delineate what your role is uh, or what the appropriate role of international actors is? So I think this is moving fast now. Yeah. I think I think the answer to that question is different. My answer to that question is different to the one I would have given you even two years ago, two years, mm. three years ago. In the IRC, we're working on our organisational, our global strategy at the moment, as you know, and having potentially looking at, at some fairly radical shifts from uh, from where we were when we set out a previous five-year strategy. Because I think there's this acknowledgement that, that the world is moving fast, that power and who holds power is, uh, is changing. Mm -hmm. And the, the kind of old power structures uh, which have characterised in many ways the sector and organisations like ours in that we have and still receive lots of our money from global northwestern governments with foreign policy agendas or priorities which find themselves in 
development and, and aid policy and practice and our organisations generally headquartered in those global north capitals and run by people uh, who don't have the lived experience of conflict, crisis, displacement. I think we're... I think there's questions of credibility, of relevance, of the integrity of the organisations in mm. maintaining um, some of those those structures. But I guess most compellingly, I think if we don't evolve to those new realities, we're going to bec- we're going to find ourselves fairly redundant anyway in the countries mm. uh, in which we're trying to work, either because <coughs> the governments of those countries will and are to some extent increasingly reluctant to give us access to do the work uh, that that we've historically been doing and because some of the communities are saying actually we want we want this done differently and we're asking Mm. different questions of them so we need to evolve um, in order to be able to respond to those demands in the first part of that the governmental aspect i think is pretty widely discussed i'm more interested in the second part i think i mean what has that looked like in your experience how is that message formulated and 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 delivered and and why is it that we can and should be more conscious of it now well i think there's a i think there's been a shift certainly in the IRC, in the sector um, of the importance of of the participation of those who are in receipt of these services in their design, implementation, evaluation, and so on, because that's the right thing to do. Sounds like you're talking about something slightly different, no? Participation in, in design and implementation is one thing. Uh, questions about sort of relevance and, and long-term direction of the sector is kind of another so the link i would make between them is that i think now we're starting to hear the answers to those questions but haven't that space haven't been opened up um i think we are becoming you know increasingly required to to pay attention to the answers to it which are kind of across the sector i think that beneficiaries of humanitarian aid are dissatisfied (laughs) to a large extent according to a number of different surveys and would like us to be doing things quite differently Mm. Um, and I think that the tension that exists between the the professionalization of the sector which I described at the beginning as being as I think as having been a necessary and critical part in, in improving quality and that now we're and another kind of tipping point that the sector having got much more standardized um having got much more compliant having got much more rule bound in many ways but also needing to be more responsive to populations be they beneficiaries or partner organizations um in terms of what they want and what they think and it comes back to this power sharing piece which is where i think the mm. the, the change is going to have to happen for me, the, the question around um, safeguarding and how we are doing as a sector on our intent to ensure that all staff and all clients are protected from any mm. kind of abuse or exploitation is so intertwined with these questions about the examination of power and the abuses that can happen where we're not interrogating Mm. allowing ourselves to have those honest conversations and get into that space of some level of discomfort about understanding the very very natural um and entirely human kind of accumulation of power that comes Mm. through a whole host of historical and social and contextual variables that are not to do with the individual but then how as an individual again recognizing those dynamics in terms of our our relationships with our with our colleagues, with our clients, and hearing back from people about how they perceive the use of my my power, my management, my leadership, what I do with it. How is that helpful or unhelpful or damaging to the people that I think I'm being useful to? 
Um, and I and I think that links into this this discourse about about safeguarding. At one level, it does link to it. At another level, it maybe doesn't though, because the policy conversation around safeguarding does tend to be much narrower. No, it's this is my personal view, of course, but it, it does seem to be largely focused on sort of a narrow set of issues, particularly around sexual exploitation and abuse, and uh, a few other sort of really overt and media-sensitive forms of abuse of power, I will say, mm-hmm. not discounting their seriousness in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. But that sort of broader idea about accountability for how authority is used ethically and responsibly or not seems a little bit beyond the purview of most safeguarding conversations. Absolutely. absolutely. I, I suppose I see, I see them as needing to be more more integrated um those approaches i think that the kind of the sharp end the hard end of of sexual exploitation and abuse generally speaking comes from a, a from a place of other less egregious forms of mm. abuse of power and i think were we able to look more systemically at those questions of how power is used and abused and how different forms of kind of the code of conduct violations actually link together and potentially sort of reinforce each other and create more permissive environments for the more egregious uh, types of abuse. I think that would move us beyond the, 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 those sort of, perhaps necessarily at the moment, narrower policy definitions to a place of cultural change which i think has to to underpin this i always wonder if people are emotionally ready for that conversation the way you described it it is pretty drastic redefinition of one's own role and and significance in a way if you attach your significance to Mm. the kind of role that you're playing, and I asked you uh, sort of directly of you, you know, would would still find the same sort of interest and, and satisfaction working in the UK? And you said yes, but a lot of people would not say that. I think mm. a lot of your peers would not would find it quite hard to scale back their engagement in yeah. that way. Yeah. No, I think it is a. It's I guess a, I, I'm it, asking you to speculate on other people's emotional I do, I'm not, I'm not state gonna, of mind, which is. A, I'm not going to do that. Um, I I do think it's an emotion. It is a shift that will be necessarily emotional. It has to be about being being congruent and recognizing that we can't. I don't think we can maintain narratives in the sector that are for others uh, without turning that lens on ourselves and and asking ourselves those hard questions about you know what are there ways in which we are replicating colonial norms um, in the ways that we're working in the people that we're bringing in to make decisions in and if so what do we do to do that differently um, mm. and I and I do feel there is a growing urgency uh, around that partly because of the the convergence of lots of other things that are happening in the world in terms of more hostile narratives to people living in places that are marginalised. The way you describe the narrative as, as something that maybe has existed for some time but would become better equipped to hear, does that mean that you personally would have done things a bit differently looking back at the the list of sort of countries and roles you've been in, would you, and I obviously give you, you get a pass on South Sudan because it was the, it was the very first, but would you, would you change anything looking back sort of having, you know, increasingly had this realization or received this message in the last few years? Would you change anything? Yeah, I think I would, I would require myself to change things if I, you know, if I was able to get in the time machine. I have, you know, I have a very different uh, sense of criteria for recruitment and who I want mm. to work with and how I want to learn 
from difference uh, rather mm-hmm. than looking to people who are like me, um, mm-hmm. which I think was an, probably an error that I made earlier in my career and that lots of people I think, continue to make. I think questions about how we do our work and how we how we partner, how we position to be a good partner, how we design differently. Uh, I feel like all of those questions mm. are very front and centre now. I'd love to have to say I would have applied that learning mm. earlier. I'm not sure that I would without having learnt it. Yeah, well, some of, some of those are sort of skills that and, and capabilities that you acquire progressively, but some of it also is about outlook, particularly the first point you mentioned, I think. One of the recurring themes when I've had humanitarians on the podcast is pretty harsh criticism, I will say, of uh, well-being and just overall treatment of human resources, I will Mm. say, in the sector. And you you did flag earlier that one of the things you were proud of was uh, making a lot of people redundant in the right way, thereby strongly implying that a lot of the time it's done in the wrong way. Did you have any reflections over that time frame expanding on that, on how we treat people? And even even your own experience, when you have a, a young child, you've moved God knows how many times, mm-hmm. um, had to relocate, etc. That can't have been easy in, 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 in many, many respects. Any thoughts on... on where the sector is in that regard. Yeah. No, I mean, I feel like there's there's definitely forward motion um, in terms of the sector being more more understanding of and inclusive of a wider range of world experiences of people's different versions of lives. And mm. I think that moving from a, a fairly kind of... Uh, Western, fairly kind of macho in in lots of ways, uh, kind of view of the humanitarian field as a place where, as you say, single um, people, typically uh, men, um, can can travel out of the place that they're in or from into somewhere else uh, to support and then and then go away again. I think that's all uh, that's all on the move with the recognition of. You know, like we've talked about where the majority of our staff are actually from and their life experience. I guess within the IRC, that, that's sort of encapsulated in this commitment that we've made to feminist leadership and some really conscious efforts to, to ensure that women and other minority groups um, are able to operate within the organization so different kind of policy and practice that's been set up including with an attention for uh, caregivers which i do think is particularly acute and important um in the Mm. coronavirus reality uh at the moment but i i suppose what i wanted to say in addition is that as a as a single parent uh with a with a small child, a four-year-old, just acknowledging that those positive steps forward, while they're absolutely to be celebrated, they remain kind of insufficient and incomplete to ensure, to, to really enable people to participate fully um, and entirely uh, into jobs, two sets of responsibilities, which do have a lot of a lot of inherent tensions between them. And I suppose I feel like I've been very privileged to have got to the stage of my career that I got to before uh, before having a child and being able to set some of my own kind of rules around mm. uh, how this is going to work uh, and, and have come to that with a real sense of responsibility about, okay, well, if I can... If I can make policy change for me and my kids in terms of traveling together or in terms of flexible working or indeed of cho- you know, choosing when and and where to move countries, um, I really need to try and 
be modeling and be, be congruent in terms of policy and practice for, for other people, be they single mothers or, or people with the whole constellation of different mm. kind of caring experiences and different constraints that, that all of us have. Privilege, or was, was that a... Was that almost a necessity that you be in a sort of more stable? I mean, obviously, it's a very personal decision, but I, 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 the logical point at which one is more able to do these things is where one is in this more sort of stable, quote unquote, regional positions rather than, you know, being based somewhere that's very insecure or where you're going in and out all the time. How is it that you, if I can ask, that you sort of waited until that point? Was it something that you put off for that reason or? Was it not planned in that kind of way? Uh, no, we've been trying for quite a long time. I think, like lots of people, the kind of timing around around this stuff is often a mixture of kind of luck and happenstance. Um, and I, yeah, I would have definitely made, or I would have presumably made different decisions um, about how to manage my situation had I been starting a family. Um, mm as a as a country director in a conflict affected situation uh i suppose yeah probably those aspirations influenced my ambition or my kind of desire to mm. move to to a more kind of stable situation um and certainly have influenced the decision to to want to stay in nairobi um which yeah. is such a child friendly and brilliant place I, I suppose one of the things I, one of the epiphanies I had when I, when I knew I was having a baby was um, that there was this whole new person coming into the equation who I hadn't met yet, and I didn't know what his or her views on all of this were going to be. And I suppose that's kind of been the the mantra ever since, really, that we would need to, you know, it would need to move from myself and a, and a partner to what this child thinks and wants and needs yeah. um, and I think that's only going to get more kind of acute now um, you know, as he gets more opinionated about where he's uh, where he's going to be living and I suspect I'll need to you know, be flexible with that and and see what the mm. career stuff kind of looks right. like as a consequence is that something that's discussable in a professional setting so maybe not you know not in a in a job interview itself but when one is discussing their motivations for moving to a, a job in in Nairobi let's say or, or you're in Abidjan previously where one could arguably also do this is that something people would say with the the mm -hmm. well you know a more stable thing will will permit me to pursue this very sort of important family thing that I that I want to do or does it have to be referred to kind of in in code are we at the point where people can openly say that that is a you know that can be recognized as a very valid motivation for for seeking particular kinds of work I think it depends on I think it depends on organizational culture on interpersonal relationships so you know how how is the relationship with the manager or the or the interviewer um or the you know the person on the receiving end and i think it depends an awful lot on mm. on an individual's sense of my sense you know of kind of security and status within an organization which by by the time I was having to have these conversations, and I, di I did decide to be very, very upfront about mm. um, about that, and you know, about my about my pregnancy and about my um, ambition. But I was again coming from a place of uh, relative seniority, relatively high status, and and a lot of kind of accrued sort of goodwill and, and appreciation. I think within the organisation, plus it was all coinciding with a time at which the the organizational commitment mm. to gender equality and to really naming these kind of issues was 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 huge but you know i was lucky um to to be able to push through some conversations but a year or two earlier both personally and kind of organizationally 
I I think probably would have been much much harder to have had and possibly that I wouldn't have even ventured to have and certainly you know my experience of talking to mm. you know, friends and colleagues about this kind of stuff is, you know this is by no no means a, a done deal um I think particularly when you layer on other ways in which um people feel or are discriminated against in within an organization and and i I feel again a real responsibility for to to pay attention to this stuff for a lot of uh, my colleagues who are on national national contracts in their countries of in their home countries who certainly talk about feeling much less power an agency and ability to have these kind of conversations and that that needs needs to change as well so the organizational culture is really through up and down side to side across the the whole organization yeah i imagine that would be still more difficult if one were describing a something other than the stereotypical sort of western caregiver arrangement of it's a, an aunt or a, a an orphaned nephew or a someone who's ill uh, in, a, in a different sort of arrangement, not just your child. I imagine this conversation becomes much harder still, but it doesn't, that doesn't make the responsibility any less real, of course. Yeah, absolutely. You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.